Welcome back to the Content Lab, the podcast for all involved in content marketing. I am Revenue and Features Editor John Becker here at Impact and joined by the lovely, talented, and amazing Liz Moorhead. Flattery gets you everywhere, John. I love it so much. We are recording this uh, on a beautiful kind of sunny day in January that actually started off with snow where where I am uh, and then has progressed to be like 40 degrees and sunny. Uh, it is inauguration day when we're recording this. So just watched um, the inauguration and uh, yeah, I'm feeling, I'm feeling great. How are you? I'm doing great. Um, first of all, uh, well, okay. First of all, I, I have a wide range of emotions. I'm going to try to run through these very quickly. Woke up this morning, saw the little snowflake. Cause it's like, good morning, Liz. I hope you slept well. And it says like 34 degrees snow. I'm like, oh my God, snow, like full mock speed to go outside. And there's no snow. It's there's grass and it's cold. And we didn't get like, I don't know if it's because I'm down by the shoreline near New Haven, but yeah, we got squat. So I was really disappointed in that. Um, also I was joking with you before we got started today, like somehow over the past couple of weeks, you and I have managed to pick news days to record so last time we we recorded it was the little like light coup d'etat just kind of like to start off the year uh and you just mentioned that we watched the inauguration and again i'm just going to say this from a completely apolitical standpoint as someone who's a dc native and you know i actually had a, a split family where my dad he was a lobbyist but he like you know supported Clinton, things like that. And my stepmom worked for Fred Thompson, who was like a staunch Republican from Tennessee in the Senate. And so I've always had like this blended family where it's like, you love the process. Like you hear people say that you watch analysts and talking heads, like democracy in action. And like, you kind of want to vomit a little bit, but I am one of those people. So I just love seeing the pomp, the circumstance, the tradition, all of that stuff this morning. Uh, I just love watching it. And I just love seeing my hometown look so pretty. It, it, the, one of my favorite things to do when I was younger, when um, I still lived in the district. So in like my, my early and mid twenties, when I moved back after living in new England for a little bit was when I would get really stressed out, I would take my car and just drive around the touristy areas of DC at night. And here's the weird thing. DC has a very vibrant nightlife and culture, you know, incredible restaurant districts, things like that. But when you're near like the White House, the Capitol, the Washington Monument, all of the monuments, it's incredibly quiet because that is not really a commercial area. So you drive around and it's just like these beautiful loops and avenues. And it's just, you feel so much emotion and so calm at the same time. And I really miss doing that. Um, I will have it is getting to do that soon. So that's kind of nice. <laughs> oh, do you want to, do you want to talk about that? I don't know. I mean, like, it's not really going to impact listeners. I'm moving back to Maryland for some like fun personal reasons, but I'll be back in the DC area and still going to haunt you guys up here in Connecticut when I can for filming, but you know, <laughs> anyway, you were going to say something else. I love DC. Uh, I think it's a great city and you know, something I grew up spending a lot of time in New York because my family's all from New York and something about DC with uh, an absence of skyscrapers, it makes the city feel so different. You know, like it, it, New York is full of so many kind of craggy little streets, especially the lower you go on the island um, with like 
shadow and dramatic lighting and DC feels like much more open and, and um, you know, it's very walkable, like you said, great nightlife. Um, and I still have quite a few friends who live in the area or in the actual district and great city. I haven't been in a long time. The last time I went was my um, sister-in-law graduated from medical school in Georgia, uh, in, in DC, like eight years ago. And, and um, but I haven't been back since. So love the city. Beautiful, as you said, on display today as, um, as the inauguration takes place in such a, such a gorgeous day. Do you know why DC is so different from other cities in the country? that way? I, be, I believe I do because Ooh. there is a, in a, in a, I don't know if it's official, um, but a, a rule that you don't build anything higher than the Capitol Dome. It is a rule. People have tried Which to is, get around that rule and it has not worked out for them. It has not worked so out. I've spent a lot of time in Philly and for a long time in Philly, there was the, I, I think it was not an official rule that you don't build any higher than William Penn's hat on the top of city hall. And then like, for whatever reason, someone transgressed, built higher, and now there are tons of buildings uh, that are much taller than the city hall um, in the city that give it more of like a traditional feel. And DC is, is just so different compared to oh, the yeah. other major cities in the Northeast. The other, yeah. And the other thing too, is that, so it, if you've ever been to Paris, you'll actually get a familiar feeling going around Paris as you will in DC, because it was first of all, laid out like Frenchman, uh, laid out by a Frenchman. Pierre L'Enfant uh, designed the city. So that's why you have Logan Circle, Thomas Circle, and and Fran uh, Paris is also famous for its circles, its, its big sprawling avenues and, and things like that. So it, it is laid out very differently from a lot of cities like the Port of Boston, where you have like random little, random little streets that are just like, oh, there's a street here now. What's it called? Big Bean Street. I don't know. It's here now. <laughs> anyway, we're not here to talk about political or New England history. Um, that was a fun little tangent, though. I could talk about DC forever. Love it. Uh, you're right. We're not here to talk about uh, to talk about our, our homes, but we are here to talk a little bit about autobiography. And that that's the best segue I can pull out of out of our opening because we're I talking about. About okay. Oh. So we're talking today about the way that we bring ourselves into our writing and the way that we bring personality into our writing. And it's something that uh, you and I, we're very different writers. I think we're very complimentary writers. Um, we both do it in our own ways. But I think there is, and we've talked before in this show about how there could be, when you come out of high school, you come out of college, you're taught so often to diminish any personality or, or even, you know, banish any personality from your writing. You should, this is just about the facts, just about what you can prove. Opinions don't matter. Don't use I, um, don't be colloquial. And in writing that you actually want people to read, uh, they appreciate having a human on the other end. And you don't want to sound too stuffy and you don't want to sound too um, formal and rigid and, and, uh, restrained. And so that's a tough transition for a lot of people. And it's a topic that I think we get asked about a lot by people on our team and people we work with. And it's a, it's a fascinating shift that we ask writers to, to make. And, and it's, 
it's not always easy to know exactly how to do it. So our broad topic today is how and why and when you bring personality into your writing. I love the diplomatic way you put that, you know, that you and I have different but complementary <laughs> styles of writing. You are, you are measured, you are pithy and witty, and I am like a word tornado with every single thought in my head just exploding onto paper. Just- I was going to say word tornado. I actually had that written down and then I struck it out of my I just feel like shooting script. You know, I'm the person who's going to find a way to link content marketing to Fast and Furious 3 Tokyo Drift. And that's just not something that would ever really enter into your sphere. Yeah, I consider my relationship with Tokyo Drift to be a personal thing that I don't want to bring into my work. But that's... (laughs) You literally just made me so happy. I want that... My relationship with Tokyo Drift is a personal thing. I don't want to bring it to my work. Oh my god! Uh, <laughs> but, <I'm- laughs> but so I mean, something something you say, Liz, all the time, and I I love it, and I've um, I, I've definitely co-opted it. Is you always advise writers like to read over what you write and and make it sound as if, or make make sure that no one else could have written that except you. So talk about how, like, where did that come from and how do you do that, you know, when you work with a writer? So as with most of my kind of declarations and ways of doing things, it usually starts with somebody saying something that kind of like gets stuck in my brain for the wrong reasons and that I disagree with it or I am hearing somebody say something and not follow into it in practice. And in this case, the one I'm about to speak about is the latter. By a show of hands for all of you listening who I can't see, and I'm just going to assume it's all of you. How many of you work at companies where people say your people are your greatest differentiator? I'm sure it's almost all of you. And then I will go to that company's website and I will read all their articles. Maybe they are awesome people where instead of just having it be like some sort of anonymous, like the company is publishing content, they'll have like actual authors of actual people with actual bios because they actually work there. And I'll read through the content, but it'll sound just like what's on their website pages. And you could literally just swap everybody's names around and you wouldn't be able to tell the difference between whether Susie wrote this one or John wrote that one, right? And then what's even more fun is then you'll go to a website of their competitor or other, like multiple competitors, and you all sound the same. So please explain to me how you are going to communicate that your people are your greatest differentiator when by the time you actually sit down for content, everything becomes so restrained, so tucked in, so shoved through that absolutely exhausting professional speak filter. Like, how is that gonna get communicated? And there are a couple of reasons why I think this is so important. Number one, it's just an easy way to stand out. Number two, um, there is this big fear, I think, that is inherent to, well, there are two things that usually contribute to a lack of personality and content. Often they go hand in hand. Sometimes people are stuck with one and not the other. Fear of doing it. I'm not supposed to do this. What if I'm rejected? What if people don't like me? What if nobody wants to sit with me at the lunch table in, in the cafeteria? Um, is my boss going to yell at me? All of these little different things. And then there's the other one, which is, okay, I kind of bought into it, but I literally don't know how to do it because it is something where you mentioned this earlier. And we actually talked a bit about this in an earlier episode of, I'd say about a year ago. Um, 
about making that transition from academic writing to professional writing, like a, like a human, not a robot learning to love. Um, that's, that's a difficult transition to make. Um, but the reality is, is that that's what people want. Like, like, let's say you're someone who is a frontline employee who's been somehow harangued into, you know, writing a piece of content, right? But this is going to be a piece of content that's read by a prospect who at some point is going to meet you. Don't you think that that is a really great opportunity from a sales perspective to make your content, not in the gross way, stickier because they feel like they also get to know you. Like, I also like to refer to each piece of content you make as a, as, as a handshake. You know, you're not just bringing someone in and answering their question. You're answering it in such a way that they remember you were the one who gave them the answer. And that is incredibly powerful. So if there are those like twin impediments, one being fear and one being maybe like a skill deficit, like not knowing actually how to do this, can we break those down and, and like attack them separately? So how do you, how do you address, how do you overcome what I think is a, a really understandable fear of like, my boss won't like this, or I'll try to be funny and it won't work, or no one's going to get my reference to Fast and Furious, or, or you know, maybe like connected to that is like, like it, it doesn't, I remember listening to a, sorry, this is a bit of a tangent, but it'll come back, I promise. I remember listening to an interview with someone, um, a, a radio, uh, like a DJ, and talking about how, like, what had happened to radio over the last 30 years. And it was essentially like this, like a focus group process gone awry, where, like, why do you play only five songs from the Beatles and, and like, five songs from this band? Like, all these bands who have, like, amazing catalogs, but you only play these very, like, radio-friendly, you know, hits, for, for lack of a better word. And... And his response was like the, the corporate culture has been like, well, you just don't want to turn people off. So you play the most milk toast, uh, agreeable playlist ever. And yes, it's redundant, but you're not going to turn anyone off. And, and so there's fear of my boss would like this. There's fear of I don't sound right. So like, how do you do it? So that is a perfect analogy, because what I usually tell people is that it's that it's that desire to play it safe, right? But what happens when you play it safe? You're the radio DJ who plays the music that's completely inoffensive and you become that person at the party who makes safe jokes, is agreeable, doesn't really have any opinions and guarantee you the next day, you're like, yeah, he was really great. What was his name? <laughs> like being completely milk toast, being completely agreeable, being 100% safe is a really quick way to become one with the wallpaper. Like the reality is, is that, you know, what are you gonna do? Hide who you are until somebody finally meets you? Hide what your company culture is like? Hide all these different aspects of your personality? In terms of how you actually get over it, you just have to do it once. Um, and I wanna put something out there because one of the biggest pushbacks I get to this is that, well, Liz, you work in marketing. It's the fun industry. You're allowed to show personality. You're allowed to talk about Fast and Furious Tokyo Drift until you go completely nuts. We are a B2B services firm. We are a business. 
We are a business that caters to small businesses across, across a wide range of very serious industries, healthcare, IT, technology, home services, construction. We are not selling to people who are like me. And yet people like to toot my own horn, they enjoy my content. It is memorable. People like watching me speak. Why? Because I am 100% authentically myself and I'm still an honest, thorough and transparent teacher when I'm answering the questions that they're looking to get answered. The, the reality is, is that you can be 100% authentically yourself. Now, if 100% authentically yourself also would mean you'd need some sort of like, you know, what is it? Like a standards professional constantly walking around with like a sensor button. Like, I'm sorry, not everybody's Gary Vee. So like, you know, there, there is a line of like what is professionally appropriate. But the reality is, is that what I've noticed when I've taken people through exercises where I'm like, I'm going to push back on this draft until you give me something that doesn't sound like a robot. I've noticed that they're scared until the moment they get that first reaction from somebody. And I've seen it happen every single time without fail when I do content coaching. The first time I make someone publish something that tells a personal story or has their voice in it or is some in some way raw, raw and vulnerable. Like people think like, oh, having a personality and content is telling jokes. Like it's not being funny is not a substitute for like a personality trait. And people will sniff that out because what they will see is like, oh, they're trying to be funny. It's just about sounding like a human, being conversational. If you are trying to teach them something, use real world examples, use things that are memorable. Talk about how you failed. Talk about how you learned something. Like personality just means showing up as yourself. It doesn't mean trying to become this elevated lofty version of yourself. But every single time it happens, they'll get that one email and they'll forward it to me and they'll say like, my colleague just reached out to me and it'll always say something to the effect of like, wow, Brian, or wow, Will, or wow, whomever, this was so amazing. I didn't know you could write like this. I didn't know you could create content like this. People are aching for humanity. Mm. But I feel like there are also sometimes impediments, not just from within the writer, but from within the organization that if publishing on the blog needs to go through a certain number of checkpoints or a certain number of rubber stamped approvals or something like, I know that's an impediment to publishing in general. And I, I would imagine that can also be a, a, an impediment to publishing content that has, that, that takes some risks, that shares some personality, et cetera. If that has to be approved by this VP, that VP, uh, et cetera, before it goes out the door. Um, I think that could also stand in the way. So a couple of things jump out to me there. Number one, if you are trying to stand up a content marketing program where we recommend you're publishing at least two to three times a week, I don't know how that's viable or sustainable that your VP is signing off on every single piece of content. Now, I know there are some organizations like or some industries where we're talking about like finance. And I've, I've written for finance organizations where they have a lot of compliance that they need to go through. That is a different story. But just as a little side note here, if you have like 
three rounds of rigorous reviews for every single piece of content you create, there needs to be a conversation about empowering you as a content manager or the marketer or the business leader who owns that strategy to be the sign off and just have that subject matter expert you're working with on that piece of content. If you're doing like an interview or something, they need to be the one who owns like, yep, this is exactly reflective of what it needs to be. It takes some time to build up that trust, but that is very important. If you have those layers of approval, you're gonna have a bad time. Now, going back to the original question. So when you have lots of these layers of approval, I wanna share a story about a client I used to have a really long time ago. And let's talk about how dry uh, this industry is. They did call center solutions for law enforcement and hospitals. And like, <laughs> you know how when you were like, when you get on a phone to call customer service and you're frantically pressing zero, so you don't have to listen to the automated messages, they made those messages. And this was a situation where they did have lots of layers of approval. I would work with a subject matter expert. They would shape up the draft, but then still the CEO because he really wanted his hands on everything, which was fine. Um, he would also still have to sign off on everything. And there was this one guy who I believe he was a CFO. He was absolutely incredible at this, like incredibly gifted. And he was telling the story. He was basically going to write an article about uh, text messaging applications for customer service. Is anybody else asleep? I am. But to tell the story of their efficacy, he didn't write about anything scandalous. He told the story about how one day he had to be dance dad. And as dance dad, he had to be at the auditorium all day to watch a bunch of six-year-olds fall down in tutus. And so he thought when his daughter was not up there being awesome at falling down and embracing gravity and all of the lovely physics lessons we learn as children, um, he sat there and he was like, I'm going to get caught up on a bunch of stuff. So he started like checking through bills and doing stuff like that. And the one company that didn't make it difficult was surprisingly AT&T because he was able to use this text messaging customer service application that was automated with robot. And he was able to take care of a bunch of stuff that a year ago he would have had to call. It would have been an hour and it would have taken forever. That is not a scandalous story. That is a human story that shows that he is in fact a human being and it is purposeful and germane to the discussion. So my purpose of telling that story is this. Again, personality doesn't mean you suddenly start spouting off Godfather quotes like I do or acting like a lunatic. Like this is very much fundamentally who I am. My personality is six feet tall, as is my body. Like this is just how I was born. But like, John, you mentioned earlier that you and I are very complimentary. It's why we work on this podcast together. And if you read your work and my work, they are very different. But yours also has like a little edge of humor to it. You talk about how, you know, you're a planner and things like that and how you like, you, you don't just have plan A and B, you have C, D, E, F, you know, like you have all those things in place. Personality, really what it comes down to is just thinking as a human. If I were to explain the importance of a concept, is there a personal story I can tell? And I always ask myself this question. When I have a question in front of me that I'm answering in a piece of content, like, how do I write a content strategy? Or how do I create a video script for a marketing video? I ask myself, am I able to answer this question because I have been this person and have been in their shoes and understand how they feel? Or am I someone who talks with people all the time who are in their position or some combination? If it's the some combination or I relate to them, 
I know immediately I need to find a way to infuse myself into this. Like I can answer, like, I can tell you how painful it is to write a content strategy and here's the solution. And you will believe me because I once was you at 2 a.m. screaming and crying and wanting like a sandwich, but also sleep and pajamas because like I had 15 different competing business priorities and I didn't know how to balance them in a strategy. So it's all about context. It's just about unflipping that academic switch and approaching these questions and thinking about if someone were sitting across from me at a table who I knew, how would I explain this to them? Because I guarantee you it would be wildly different than I'm going to sit down and write the answer like this is an essay for school. Like, not. Yeah. Well, so that makes a lot of sense. And I feel like we're, we're starting to tread into the waters of not just why, but the how. And, and I feel like that's the, that's really the crux of it because like, even like you're saying, like, yes, it makes sense to let my humanity be on display to, to realize that the person reading this is also a human being who has challenges and concerns and, and joys and fears. And maybe um, I've been right where they are and that, that allows me to be empathetic or maybe um, there's some other way that I can form that connection. But what does that look like on the page or on the screen or, or actually in words? Like, how do you, how do you kind of get started? And I know it's like a permission thing. Uh, and I think that that makes sense, like giving ourselves permission or, or giving people who work with you permission to sound like themselves. Um, how do you push them into that? So we're going to set aside that fortune cookie phrase of like, look in the mirror, give yourself permission to be the beautiful flower that I know you are. Okay. So that's like the bullshit part. We already know, right? Like we already know that fine. Give yourself permission, do the thing. What does it actually look like? The great irony is that in order to lock, unlock that human personality driven part of yourself, the first thing you do actually has nothing to do with yourself. I don't sit down and say like, how am I going to put my personality into this? The first thing I do is I think very critically about who is the person that is virtually sitting in front of me? So I visualize them, right? I'm like, so I know the question they're asking me. Let's just say it's like, what is a content strategy? I'm like, okay. I know what the question is. If they were in front of me right now, how would they be asking me that question? Would they seem stressed? Would they seem happy? Like, what? why are they asking me this question right now in this moment? And to use that example of what is a content strategy, it's like, well... Um, likely there's some sort of experienced marker, marketer, probably still a little bit green and they're probably a little confused. Maybe they're just launching a content marketing program or maybe they've been doing it for some time and they think things are going pretty okay and they're getting some results. And then one day their boss walks in and says, hey, can I see a strategy for the stuff that you're doing? And then you're like, well, crap, isn't that the content calendar I already have? Is the content calendar not the same thing? And it's this whole swirling thing of stress. So essentially what I do is I try to really focus on it from an empathetic perspective. And I have a series of questions. I, I actually, it's called an audience planner worksheet. I'll link it in the show notes, but it's a series of questions that I go through every single time. You know, who is this person specifically? When are they asking me this question and why? Uh, if we were on the street, did they run up to me or walk up to me? Uh, how would I describe their emotional state if they were sitting in front of me? Um, 
some other ones are, I'll say, I'll ask myself to create three, I feel blank because blank statements. Like I feel stressed because I don't understand why I'm being asked this question. Um, and that's really where I start. I love that idea because if we're writing content, we're expecting people to find it through organic search. And there is like, a, there's an element of Anytime you're typing a question into, into Google, into a search engine, there is like, a, there's an element of stress there. There's an element of like, I need this now, I'm busy. Like there's, unless someone is, and I think Andy Crestedina says something like this, where he says people searching are busy, people on social media are bored. Um, you know, if someone is searching for something that might lead them to your article, chances are there is like, there's an element of stress there. There's an element of like, I need this now. I need an answer. I need this. They've reached um, the point and, where they can't do something themselves. That's what it comes down to. They need intervention. There is no choice. Yeah. And there's always, you're absolutely right. There's always some sort of friction there. So as you imagine that person's emotion, I, I think we, you know, we, we think about ourselves when we start something. Like you said, well, you yeah. get to a point where you don't have the answer or where you need to consult or you need help. And that's why I asked myself those questions first, because to go back to the original point, you know, so we're spending all this time right now talking about the audience and their needs and their wants. So what the heck does that have to do with personality? Because the last two questions of that worksheet I ask are, okay, other than the answer, what do they need for me? Is it empathy? Is it understanding? Is it relatability? Is it, you know, just like, just the facts in a memorable way, like something like that. And then the other thing I do is the last question is, okay, so what should you never do when you answer this question? And in some cases, it's like, don't rush through, don't make them feel stupid, don't talk down to them, don't whatever. Like, basically, I come up with my personality list of do's and don'ts, because what that does is it makes sure that your tone is appropriate. Because when it comes to, like, we talk a lot about this from a brand perspective, you're, you have your voice and your tone. Guess what? Those are person, human attributes that we've now applied to brands. And your voice, essentially, I want you to think about it as this. It's your personality. It's the thing about you that never changes. Tone is dynamic based on the situation. So yes, I'm a fucking lunatic. I talk, I, I like quote Michael Corleone like all the time. Like I was talking in a meeting earlier today and I'm like, today I take care of all family business. And they're like, Liz, this is a content meeting. Uh, <laughs> like stands. But like if somebody's coming to me and they're in a serious problem, like I stow that crap. Right. And I'm like, okay, I need you to relax and breathe with me. You know, I may still throw in a little bit of whatever, because that's just who I am, but my tone is entirely different. I love that. And, and you have a bunch of avenues that you write in as do I, but, but one thing that you write is our newsletter. And I think there's a, there's a lot of room for personality and for humor and for, um, you know, a, a curation of things that you find on the internet, et cetera, there. Whereas in something else, like a, a pillar, uh, there's, it, it calls for something different. I, I was thinking about this as you were saying that, Liz, I think we all know the experience of like looking for a recipe online and you like click, like, oh yeah, yeah okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna bake these, like, I'll bake these cookies and you, and you click on the link and, and it's, and you have to scroll down past this whole, like, the story well, about, in, like in fourth grade, when I would come up, oh. the bus, mother, mother would always greet me with thumbprint cookies. And, 
the smell. And it's like, care. come on, just tell me. Exactly. exactly. I don't care and it's, that it's you have so 13 generations of oral history about like exactly. my family never wrote down recipes and I'm the first one to do it in 13 generations because everybody else just spoke in runes. Like, no. But but at the same time, I could see maybe on like a cooking show and maybe the food writers just want to be on a cooking show. Maybe on a cooking show, as you're baking, you might kind of talk through the story of your memories of a certain dish. Both of those mediums are delivering the same information, but the the tone behind them in one case is is spot on and in the other case is so unwelcome that it's almost comical. Yeah, it, it, it is kind of ridiculous in that perspective. And that's where it comes down to like, what's the context? Now, what I will say is that if I have a situation where, and this is another little trick of mine, so how do I know when I have permission to be a little bit sillier or a little bit more human? If some, if I have a, if I have a topic where the last two questions don't involve some form of like, you need to be empathetic, you need to be this, like there's a high relatability understanding. This is a, this is a situation that requires like, like serious, not like super serious tone, but you, you can't be like throwing in a bunch of extra stuff there. If it's more like, this is someone who's like really learning something. They're like getting educated. It's a goal, but there isn't a lot of stress around it. That's where I like to pull in my personality in examples. So for example, about examples, um, we had a paid media specialist for a long time named Dan Baum, who did a really great job of infusing personality into his work. And I'll include the example I'm about to talk to in my show notes. But the thing that really jumped out at me is that he did this great top of the funnel, what are Google display ads plus exam definition and examples, like really dry topic, but he's a big Yankees fan and his favorite TV show is friends. And he had a friend of his who got, who almost had an engagement that he had for his fiance spoiled because Google display ads for brilliantearth.com for which does engagement rings were on his computer and his girlfriend saw it. And so he was able to show Google display ads that were for the Yankees, tell the story about how Google display ads work sometimes to their detriment with that story about brilliantearth.com. So it creates these things that are, it's not only just because you want to show personality, it also makes the, the examples that you're trying to teach more memorable. So like for, when I am creating examples for things, I'll do something ridiculous. Like, Instead of saying like, let's imagine that you are a mid-sized IT firm in the Washington DC area who exclusively services law firms. I'll say, let's pretend you are an alpaca farmer in Yakima Valley and you specialize in miniature sweaters for dachshunds. And it sounds ridiculous, but it makes the, the concepts that you're trying to teach stickier. Now, again, your examples don't have to be ridiculous. They can just be related to stuff that you like. You know, it's just stuff where it's like, again, use stuff that contextually makes sense. Right. Because like, there's the old, uh, I think it, in like an economics classroom, whenever they're talking about a, a company, they always say they make widgets, you know, they make this like fictional product that doesn't exist and doesn't, it doesn't have any real attributes and, and any example that doesn't have like real world implications feels more phony and less, you know, less believable, less authentic, and ultimately less useful if you're just talking about something that is made up and arbitrary and therefore forgettable. 
Yeah. I mean, that, that's what it comes down to is that like, again, if you're familiar with they ask you answer, which is a very, which is a specific approach to what people might call inbound marketing or content marketing. And the great thing is, is that if you've never heard of what I'm talking about right now, it's super simple. The whole idea is that your content strategy is based around what are the questions of your ideal, ideal buyers? Fun fact, you will not answer them in written video and written content, video, smoke signals, carrier pigeons, I don't know, whatever your preferred medium is. Um, but when we talk about they ask you answer, that whole goal is like, look, everybody's doing content marketing now, right? Like five, 10 years ago, you were the special little snowflake with a blog, killing it, killing the game, blogging once, maybe twice a month. Now everyone's doing it and you're all answering the same questions. So yeah, you've got to have that really like dialed in strategy where you make sure that your content is getting ranked. But one of the biggest factors in terms of ranking is the quality of the content. Like it's not good enough to just write the answer. It's like, what's two plus two? Four. Okay, great. Like that's, that's not something you'd see in a piece of content, but like depth, complexity, you know, the more engaging you make your content, the like, more likely that the visitors on your website are going to stay on your page longer. And that's something called dwell time. And dwell time is another big ranking factor for Google. Because if people go click on your page and go there, but then immediately go back to the search result, that will be what's called a signal to Google that that's not very good content. So the more you can make it engaging, the more that you can keep people around, you will serve your business in two ways. One, you will stand out from your competitors who are still fearful little people who are like, our people are our greatest competitor, but we're not going to let them sound like themselves. Like you will be more memorable answering those questions and you will make your content more relevant and interesting, which means you will send signals to Google with people coming to your content that this is good content. This is high quality content. Keep it going up in the rankings. So you oversee not just our written content, but also our our video content. Correct. And that's another, and in some ways, even easier way to, or even easier medium to convey your personality because you're there. It's your tone of voice. It's your mannerisms, et cetera. Can you talk about the same thing about bringing personality to a, a video? Because it's something that I always love watching you. You always do really well. You're, you're funny and animated, but also like really, um, open and, and vulnerable and, um, again, human. So same like, process or, or different process for video. Exact same process. I use the same worksheet. Um, but, and why, when I say worksheet, I mean the same questions that we walked through earlier with, you know, who is this person? Why are they asking this question? Blah, 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 blah. Um, I do find it funny though, that you said like, I'm sure it's easier, you know, you're natural. So that what you have seen was after the disaster of the first few weeks of video um, because it was actually harder for me to turn my personality on, on video. There's something very safe about being under your headphones and like, I'm gonna talk about why I hate pineapple on pizza and I'm gonna make some funny images of llamas uh, holding pencils because they're about to write blogs in Canva and I'm gonna put that in my article and like do all that stuff. Like in the written capacity, you still have that shield. You know what I mean? And when you step in front of a camera, um, I literally just gave a talk about this. Uh, it's about called how to genuinely feel confident, be likable and build trust on camera. I'll put a link in the show notes. It's pretty great. But the key thing there is that video is a very strange thing. It can take the most confident, you know, self-assured experts and turn the camera on and they just, everything drops. 
And I was one of those people. I, first of all, did not want to be on camera. Um, every time Bob was like, you should take over a video program. I'm like, I'm sorry, what? I'm going into a tunnel. And Bob's like, we're in the same room. I'm like, I can't, what? Uh, I'm sorry. You know, <laughs> and then finally I got cornered into doing it and the pandemic happened. So I couldn't pawn off filming on other people. So I got forced in front of the camera. So it was out of necessity. And the first few videos, my God, it was like, hi, I'm Liz Moorhead from Impact. And like, it's stiff, it's rigid, it's all of these horrible things. And then there was this one time where like, I started putting a little bit more personality. Like I started like loosening up and like writing a script like myself and like all of those different things. But then there was this one time where I'm like, oh, this is a serious video. What does Impact do? I am going to wow everyone and be like, little polished Pamela, no jokes. I'm going to be like straight and trust building and confident and like going to deliver it. And the sales team like immediately were like, you remember that conversation? They're like, so please. And this isn't paraphrasing for humor. Jenna Lapore, who's one of our salespeople was like, please never do that again. They're like, it is like, something is off. I'm like, well, it's supposed to be a serious topic. They're like, just be yourself. Yeah. It, it, you know, it's, it's, it's almost like it was scripted. It was so perfect for such a perfect example for example for this conversation that we're having now, because they were literally like, it was you, but there wasn't, we, we needed more Liz in it. You know, we, we needed more of you. And, and it was, it was exactly like we were saying, but this is what the sales team was saying to you in that meeting after watching that video where you tried to, you know, play it more straight because it felt like a really serious topic. It felt like there's not as much room for personality, but it's not it true. The That's the thing. The case. Like you're going to keep telling yourself like, Oh, I can't be funny. I can't do this. I can't do that. I can't write conversationally, but you will be surprised what you think people will reject. They won't. Another one of our most popular videos, get this. It's 12 freaking minutes long. It's what is a revenue team? I am goofy as heck. I open up the video with some version of like alignment is important. You know, it's important. I know it's important. My cat knows it's important. I show a picture of my cat and then she meows. Like it's ridiculous stuff. It is one of our most popular videos. It, we use it to train clients. We use it to educate prospects. And nobody's like, well, I don't want to do business with you because she has a cat. You know, like, again, there, a lot of what we do is in the spirit of our brand personality. But again, you have to remember the moment you tell yourself like, oh, but you're different and we're different. We are a B2B services firm. Most of our clients are not like me. They are, you know, Maybe some of them are my age. A lot of them are not my age. These are serious business owners who trust us with their business to help them get traffic leads and sales. Like we're not just like sitting here, like talking about brand awareness and helping people make about us videos. Like we are in a very serious industry. We get away with it because we gave ourselves permission to just be ourselves. And that's why people come to us for the answers to these questions. People want to, like, my God, we're all still like, we're on year two now. Yesterday was the one year anniversary of the first COVID case in the United States. We are now entering year two of the pandemic. 
I recently traveled, so I am trapped in my 500 square foot box of glory. And like with numbers spiking everywhere, people are retreating back into their homes. People just want to see and experience other people. Humanity is currency. Trust is currency. So do you have a, like a, a tip or a trick for people to, to get started feeling confident, feeling comfortable, expressing themselves, being funny, being vulnerable, being open in their work for their business? Focus with wild fanaticism on the emotional state of the person you're trying to reach by completing that audience worksheet. That will tell you, that is your roadmap of how you need to show up as a human being. That's your roadmap to do it. That's your number one. Number two, you've got to stop listening to those fear gremlins in your head telling you that you can't or you shouldn't do this. Now, remember, this, I'm not giving you carte blanche to suddenly act like a crazy person. Every time we show up at work, you know, we are representative of our company. And I do that too. You know, the way I, like being conversational contextually and appropriately is still authentic, even if it's not how I talk to my friends at happy hour, which is definitely a little bit different, a little bit more, probably a little more profane, just being honest. Um, especially if there are a few Aperol spritzes in the mix, it gets a little wild. Um, but you know, what it comes down to is that like, you are not going to believe it until you see it. I did not show up this way in my content. Always. I would say I really didn't start leaning into this until about two years ago. And I went on stage. I had to teach people about a really dry topic called pillar content, which is just a 10,000 word blog post. And if you think people are scared of writing 500 word blog posts, let me tell you how exciting it is to get people thrilled about that. We teach people how to do homework, homework they don't want to do. So I started telling stories and I started entertaining myself and I started trying to make something that was very dry fun. I thought people would hate it. My first speaking gig was in between, literally in the lineup. I was right after Marcus and right before Ann Hanley and I almost exploded, like just with complete fear. And people really loved it. You have to just trust me when I say that all of the things you don't like about yourself, all of the things you think people will reject, that is going to be the thing that pe makes people suddenly light up and go, oh my gosh, I didn't know you could do that. Or I'll go back to that person next time I have a question. So Liz, sorry to keep you keep you on the hot seat, but uh, do you have a learning corner tidbit for us? I do. In fact, today I have a really quick conversion copywriting tip. So I'm not going to be teaching you the difference between words or whatever, but I am going to teach you a new word. John, you're going to love it. Gerund. John, since you're the old school teacher, do you want to concisely explain what a gerund is? 
Sure. A gerund is a word that we would normally think of as a, a well, we're technically we would be a present participle of a verb. So we would, so something like running. So normally we would say like, I was running to the store and that's part of a verb phrase, but running can also function as a noun, like running is fun. And when it functions as a noun, that's called a gerund. Awesome. If I tried to explain that, it just, it would have taken a very long time. So I figured it'd be faster <laughs> that way. So essentially your gerunds are your verb that end in ing. And what we're going to, what I'm going to teach you today is a really quick conversion copywriting tip that will make the, if you were to implement this right now, like literally go to a landing page, uh, a website product and service page, any page on your website, and you implement this tiny change, you will immediately see lift in conversion rates on it. And here's the little tip. So often when we create headlines, so like we're talking about the headlines, the headers, anything above sub uh, subheaders or paragraphs on your website pages and your landing pages, gerunds make a surprising number of appearances. For example, you might have like, let's say your impact, your like impact, and you sell websites. You could say investing in your business's future with a peak performing website. Gerunds are passive. They tend to create this kind of quiet, calm, lack of urgency, like, let's talk about a thing, you know, guaranteeing your success, you know, leveling up your skill set, thriving in a video first world. There are all these like very weird, like, oh my God. So a really quick way is to get rid of all of your gerunds, like try as hard as you can to rewrite every headline you have without a gerund. For example, you know, investing in like thriving in a virtual for a video first world. Change that to something like you need your sales team to thrive in a video first world. What makes that more powerful is that gerunds never create a moment where somebody goes, yes. When you instead reposition those phrases without a gerund where you just make it just the verb being the verb, doing all the verb heavy lifting, right? That's when you create that moment where somebody says, yes, I do want my sales team to thrive in a video first world. So that's my learning for corner for this week. Gerunds are passive, wimpy, and sad. They have their place in other wishy-washy areas of your website. But if you're trying to convince somebody of something, if you're trying to create what I like, what Marcus likes to call moments of yes across your website, whether it's in your content, like you do this in talks, right? You're trying to get, you're trying to get the head nods, right? You're trying to create those head nod moments. Gerunds do not create head nods. Verbs with ing's at the end. If your first word is gerund, you have automatically lost the battle. And that is my learning core. John, fabulous. What you reading? Talk to me. Oh man, there's so much good stuff out there right now. But a few days ago was um, Martin Luther King Day and I'm bringing in something from McSweeney's which is a website that publishes hilarious stuff online. And this are these are fake MLK quotes your stepdad Gary posted to prove he's definitely not a racist. 
So you these said are all this morning. Oh my God, I almost died. It's so funny. These are all like, you know, classic pictures, black and white pictures of MLK with a quote next to them. The kind of thing you're probably seeing in your Facebook feed over the last couple of days. But they're all, uh, these are not real quotes. These are, these are, uh, these are made up. And, um, you know, sometimes people who might not want to actually engage with the important work of racial justice that's going on in this country or needs to go on, will sometimes drop in like an MLK quote to be like, see, I'm down with him. Uh, so there, there are a couple that I'll read, which are hilarious. Um, first is, uh, I have a dream that one day white people will just keep insisting, I don't see color as a response to any discussion about race. Oh my gosh. That's amazing. One is the most important civil rights warriors of the next 100 years will be the people who oppose government mask mandates during the pandemic. They are my heroes. Uh, And and just one more. Um, Have you guys seen any movies starring that actor Ronald Reagan? I really hope that dude becomes president. So uh, hilarious. We'll link it, in, uh, link it in the show notes. It's topical because of what's going on in this country and also Martin Luther King's birthday just passing. Uh, take a look, have a laugh, and see what you can get from it. I love that. That's so fun. Mick Sweeney's is one of my favorite websites, as you know, because you and I, you and I basically, as we've joked on the show before, we are like every other day trading either like a, we're like, we admit it, we're just like the typical new england east coast nerds who read the new yorker the economist and mcsweeney's uh but it's just it's great it's hilarious satire um i also down see i'm down with him (laughs) i almost fell out of my chair when he just (laughs) it's beautiful um all right well on that note um happy what is it well when people listen to this it'll be sunday so happy sunday to all of you and happy wednesday to us uh by the time you're listening to this i will likely be going through all of my books and pretending i'm going to get rid of some and then i'm just going to put them all in boxes anyway uh, and not get rid of any of them i love that ritual this is my favorite you know it's that beautiful moment where like yeah i'm going to pare down my books and like what is the cat going to tell me she can't speak english like, by the time I show up to Maryland, I'll be like, yeah, totally got rid of, but totally. This is, like, totally, like, three books lighter. Like, totally different. And on that note, hope you have a great day, John. You too, Liz. Bye, everybody. Bye, everybody.